It's good to be with you again. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Galatians 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you, before God, I don't lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of God. So here's the situation. Jesus of Nazareth is crucified under Pontius Pilate around AD 30. And on the third day, his tomb is found to be empty and a whole number of his followers, large number of his followers, start to witness that he's alive and risen from the dead. And a zealous young Pharisee, who is extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers, as we've just heard, his name is Saul of Tarsus, and he is charged with tracking down and imprisoning these so-called Christians. But in the process, he has an encounter with the risen Jesus himself. And he gets completely transformed and he becomes a believer in what's probably AD 34. 13 years later, around AD 47, under his Greek name of Paulos or Paul, he and his colleague Barnabas begin a missionary journey in what's now southern Turkey, planting churches across Galatia. And so on this map, you can see this is the shape of the journey they take. You can read about it in Acts 13 and 14. And a year after that, after returning to Antioch, Paul hears reports of what's happening in the churches he planted in southern Turkey in Galatia that make him so angry that he writes the crossest, most furious letter that you could possibly imagine appearing in a religious book. And its name is the letter to the Galatians. 
He says, I'm astonished. Chapter one and verse six, let them be accursed. He says, chapter one and verse eight, you moronic Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's ensorcelled you? He says, chapter three and verse one. He says, I wish those agitators, those troublemakers would go the whole way and castrate themselves. Chapter five and verse 12. What on earth has happened to make him so angry? What is this letter about? What's going on? Well, three things are basically going on in the church and in another church in Antioch nearby. uh, And Paul is extremely annoyed about each of them. One of the issues that's going on is that in Antioch, Jewish people have stopped eating together with Gentile people. You can read about that in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. We'll look at that uh, in uh, next week. The second issue is that in Galatia, Gentile believers have started observing Jewish feasts and festivals, which you read about in chapter 4. And the third issue is that Gentiles have started getting circumcised, like the Jews do, so as to be accepted as God's people. And we read about that in chapter 5. So there's table fellowship problem, there's a feast and festivals and religious sort of calendar kind of issue, and then there's the issue of circumcision. Or if you want it a bit more pithily, the issues at stake in Galatians are one, food, two, festivals, three, foreskins. Sorry to say it, but that's what they are. Food, festival, and foreskin. And because those three things are all taking place and they're causing the church to divide and separate, particularly the Jewish believers separating from the Gentiles and the Gentiles becoming circumcised to fit in with the Jews, Paul writes this extremely fierce letter. Now, you might think that that sounds a bit trivial. I think you don't need to rant like that and get so steamed up and start accursing and anathematizing people and saying, hey, you need to go and castrate yourself. What on earth has made this supposedly very godly man write with such passion about something that to us seems a bit trivial? So I want you to imagine a scenario for a moment. And I got this from the the New Testament scholar Tom Wright, who's a very, very helpful analogy in his work on Galatians. And he says, imagine this. Imagine that you are... Uh, you're a missionary and you work in South Africa during apartheid. And and you believe that a big part of the way that you can bring reconciliation and hope to the communities that you're working with is to build mixed race schools where people who, no matter what ethnic background they come from in South Africa, whether they're uh, Koza or Zulu or Afrikaner or English or whatever, all the different languages can come and study together in the same school. So you build one you know, one entrance and, you know, one dining canteen and the classes are all integrated and the language is, is shared. So the, the lessons are translated, but the kids are all learning together and everyone shares the same facilities, toilets, drinking fountains, everything. And it, it's a success and it becomes integrated and it becomes a little picture of hope. And then having succeeded, you as a missionary say, right, well, we've built this school. You put the, leave the school in the care of a board of governors and you move on and start doing the same thing in another nearby town. And then you get word a few months later that the Board of Governors in your absence have decided to make some changes. And they've concluded that in the end, the children don't learn as well when they're not only learning in their first language. So we decided to separate the classrooms and English kids there, Africana kids there, Koza kids there, Zulu kids there, and so on. And they said, actually, 
they, by preference, they eat different food as well. Like they, they eat different food at home. So we decided to separate out the meal facilities and say, actually, you can, if you want to eat this kind of food, you eat there, and that's where all the white kids go. You eat this kind of food there, that's where the Koza kids go, that's where the Zulika, whatever it might be. And they did that over and over again until by the end, they literally got different entrances, different exits, different toilets, different fountains, different everything. And Tom Wright, explaining Galatians, says, how would you feel if that happened? That's how Paul feels right in Galatians. That this is Paul's project is to demonstrate, among other things, the union that we have in Christ as a result of the death of Christ for all sin, covering with his grace everything we've ever done wrong and bringing people into new humanity in which the divisions that exist in the world don't exist in the church. And then he's found that having left town, some people have come in and caused trouble among the community he's built and started dividing it in exactly the ways that he had sought to tear down divisions. The whole point of Paul's message in throughout his ministry, not just in this letter, is that Jesus saves everyone who believes without any extra qualifications, without the worldly standards of worth, the way that we appraise whether people are doing well or not. The whole point of what Paul is giving his life to is that that's been torn down now because Jesus saves regardless. Now that doesn't mean that you have to throw away your culture Paul's very proud of being Jewish. We've read that already. He says it in many of his letters. And many of us are proudly English or Nigerian or Indian or Jamaican or Ukrainian, whatever it might be. Our diversity enriches us, but it mustn't divide us. And that's where Paul is passionate. And what he does is to respond to the problem at three levels throughout this letter. And you can see all three of those levels in chapter one, as we've just read it. And I like to illustrate this using Russian dolls. You know these things where you have a you have a big one and then a little slightly smaller one, and then you have a very little one in the middle. And I think this is the, a good way of thinking about reading scripture at many layers, and it's what Paul does in this letter. There is a personal level to the gospel that sits within a corporate level to the gospel, and that sits within a cosmic level to the gospel, which Paul is also insisting on. In other words, there is a new person, there is a new community, and there is a whole new world that has come into being as a result of the grace of God in Christ. And Paul engages with the problem in Galatia by using all three of them. And Paul begins, and it's probably, this might not be how we'd start, I suspect it isn't, it's not how I'd start, I don't think, but he begins at the cosmic level. He begins with the, the, you know, the big one, the world has been made new. And he begins like this, after introducing himself, chapter one and verse three, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus has come to deliver us from this present evil age, in which there are many gods and a multitude of divided and fragmented peoples, and God in Christ has come to deliver us from that age, and all that goes with it, and bring us into new creation where ethnic divisions don't count for anything. And this is where Paul also concludes the letter. I touched on this last week as well. Chapter 6, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world, because neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. And both of those statements, the deliver us from the present evil age, and what counts is new creation. They bookend all the rest of Galatians that sits in between them. So we have an introductory two verses, and parting two verses, and then these huge statements. Christ has come to deliver us from the old world and bring us into a new one, if you like. 
And the old, the evil age we live in now, Christ has come to rescue us from it and bring us into something new. And so God is rescuing the whole world from those divisions and not just us as individuals or even the church. And that's the theme Paul returns to in the letter. He comes back to it and he's animated by it. Chapter four, he comes to this and he says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The stoicheia, the, the sort of kind of powery sort of principles, principalities, powers. We're not quite sure exactly what they, how Paul even imagined them, but these sort of powers that keep people enslaved into their own world, being divisive away from other people. And God has redeemed us from that, Paul says. And yet now, having been redeemed by God, some people are going, well, actually, I want to head back to those elementary powers that used to enslave me. And it's interesting, Paul, throughout this letter and throughout all of his letters, assumes and teaches that there are spiritual powers that exist in this world that are trying to hoik us back into tribal division and ethnic pride and hatred of one another and superiority to one another. He, Paul doesn't just think about that as something that you and I do as like bad people, although that too. He thinks about it as something that we are being drawn to do by spiritual forces that need to be brought down and from which and whom Christ came to deliver us. Now, I've got a lot of Christian friends, especially in America, who get quite worried about the talk of systemic or structural injustices, like systemic racism or whatever. I've got a lot of friend, Christian friends who are concerned about the idea that powers like that might operate in a society without individual choices being made. They're worried about where that might take us, I think, politically sometimes. But that, in this letter, I think is exactly what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the fact that there are spiritual cosmic powers that constrain and hoik a culture in a particular direction away from the good purposes of God. And Christians of all people should believe in principalities and powers that enslave people and make them behave in ways that they don't even understand themselves, including racial injustice. It's a principality and a power. It's like a force at work in a culture and it's embedded in the things that that culture does and its history and its practices and I don't think Christians should be worried by that at all. In fact, that's what we would expect to be true if the New Testament picture of cosmic powers was, was correct. So let me give you an example away from race for a moment. Our culture, I think it's pretty hard to argue with, our culture is sexualized, right? The systems and structures of Western society promote sexual immorality. Even when you might not even be wanting them to, they're just the things that you see and interact with in a day and the way that media and education and politics and everything engages with this issue means a lot of people have got a lot of gain to be made out of sex. It sells things, it gets people to win certain things and win debates and it, it's a very, very basic force in our culture and it pulls us like a magnet towards sexual immorality even when we're saying, as I hope we are, saying, I'm going to stand firm against this. This isn't the way God wants us to live as men and women, but it's a pull that we have to be aware of. And I think I'm saying, I think race, racism works the same way. All right, That's what Christians mean when we talk about systemic or structural racism. We don't mean that means every individual in the society is 100% racist from head to foot. What we mean is that we live in a society where for all sorts of reasons we touched on last week, the powers and structures and systems of the society we're in hoik people in a particular direction, to in, in, like a magnet towards ethnic divisions that are not God's best for the church or for his people. 
And Christ, Paul is saying here, Christ came to deliver us from this present evil age. And all of those powers, all of the elementary principles that he's going to talk about later, Christ came to redeem us and to deliver us according to the good purposes of God the Father, to his glory forever and ever. Amen. That extraordinary opening of the letter is Paul's way of saying, Christ has come not just to deliver you as a person or even us as a church, but this world from those sorts of elementary forces, powers, and principalities. And as I say, it's a theme that he will come back to many times in this letter. So Paul starts, if you like, at the the cosmic level, the really big level. There are powers at work here. There's a world to be delivered, and that's what Jesus came to do. But the issues that have prompted Paul to write the letter are actually not primarily at that level. They're at the corporate level, the separation within the people of God on the basis of food, festivals, and foreskins, which is the way I I would summarize it. That's the presenting issue, so to speak. And that's where Paul goes next in verses 6 to 10. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So who's Paul talking about there? Well, who does he he mean when he says there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ? Who's in his sights when he's talking at this sort of more corporate level about the community? Well, he's talking about a group with a variety of different names, and he refers to them a bunch of different ways in this letter. In chapter 1 and verse 7, he describes them as some who trouble you. He uses a similar phrase in chapter 5 and verse 12. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves or castrate themselves. And that's like a, that's a play on, you know, circumcision is you're going to chop a little bit off. Why don't you just chop the whole lot off? That's what he's saying. But he refers to them as those who unsettle you. In the book of Acts, they're called the circumcision party. In chapter 2, Paul calls them false brothers in verse 4. And he says certain men came from James in verse 12. And they're also sometimes called Judaizers. A lot of people who write about them call them that based on chapter 2 and verse 14, where Paul expresses his outrage. How could you possibly compel Gentiles to live like Jews or Judaize? That's what it means. So Paul's got a whole bunch of different names for this particular group. And the basic message of this group seems to be that if Gentiles want to be fully accepted into the family of God, they need to adopt the ethnic trappings of the Jews in order to be accepted. Table fellowship, feast days, circumcision, or food festivals, foreskins, as I said. If you really want to belong, you need to become like us. I was very struck. I mean, 30-odd years ago, I don't know how old I was, 12 maybe? Yeah, 30 years ago. Uh, I read the autobiography of Ian Botham, the English cricketer. And he was lifelong friends with the great West Indian cricketer Viv Richards, and they talked a lot. He talks a lot about Viv and in, in the book. And I was just a kid reading it, but I was really struck by this one story he told about when they were debating whether or not they should go on a cricket tour to South Africa. So again, I know South Africa's moved past this now, praise God, but at the time it was still in apartheid and it was a, a, a really challenging environment and and they obviously they had to think through well so what does it mean to go and play cricket there and is that something we should do or not and a lot of countries obviously debated and boycotted and all sorts and Ian Botham was telling the story because he's good friends with Viv Richards and he said well if I was to go on this tour and Viv came with me and the two of us wanted to hang out and have a beer together what would you do and the person talking to Ian Botham about what they do said oh that's easy we'll make Viv an honorary white man That's the phrase they used. 
And he said, at that point, I just this, I just laughed in my face. I said, there's no way we're going to run a cr cricket tour on that basis. What do you mean an honorary white man? And of course, that language is sound, rightly sounds very offensive to us. You think you don't have to become like another person in order to get integrated and accepted. But that rationale, in a way, is a bit like what's happening in Galatia, which is, no, I know that Gentiles are accepted, but really for them to be fully belong and for them to fully belong and be part of the family on the same grounds as Jews, we'll let them become like honorary Jews. And so you can, so long as they get circumcised and they only eat these things and they abstain from those things and they celebrate our calendar, we'll make them honorary Jews in that sense. And in this room, tragically, there are doubtless many, many stories of exactly that sort of thing happening, even in the church. People saying, yes, if you want to be fully accepted, you need to become like this. You need to take on these ethnic trappings rather than those ones. Sometimes that might have been very explicit in your life. Like some of us are old enough to remember that, that we would walk in and it would be literally, if you're from this ethnic group, you're not welcome. Others of us say, no, it's, in my life, it's been more subtle than that. It's been, yeah, you are welcome so long as you do things this way and become like that and express it this way. In Galatia, the challenge is the demand that Gentiles have to live like Jews to be accepted. And Paul denounces that in the strongest possible terms. I am astonished, verse 6, that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. That false gospel is so dangerous, Paul says, that anyone who teaches it is under God's curse. He says, if, if even if we or an angel from heaven or anyone should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that you, we preach to you, let them be anathema. Let them be under God's curse, verse 8. So there's a cosmic level about the principalities and powers, and there's a corporate level involving these guys who are coming to town and trying to divide the church. And the reason why the stakes are so high at the big level and at the corporate level is that ultimately because of the personal level and because of the grace of God, which works at the level of individuals. You see, if I insist that you are welcome if you fulfill this other criterion over your life before you can be treated as a member of God's family, Anything other than you need to, so what I, what I should say, you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus. That's all you need. As soon as I add anything to that, I'm effectively saying that the grace of Christ is not enough. So grace isn't big enough. You need grace plus this. Grace plus circumcision. Grace plus this diet. Grace plus whatever else it might be. And saying that the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is too small, you also need this. And Paul is outraged because he sees the grace of God as being completely undermined by this kind of teaching. When I was 20, I wanted to get into uh, an all-night event that we, they ran when I was at university. They were called May Balls. Now, these sound incredibly hoity-toity things, and they are. Everyone dresses up in black tie or whatever. And, but anyway, I wanted to go, and because there's great bands there, um, but I couldn't afford to go, so I said I'd be part of the washing up group. And I would go and do the washing up, and then that meant you got to slip out for a couple of hours and experience it. But then you had to go back and do more washing up. And that's what I did, and I kind of, I don't know, it was okay, but it wasn't what I'd hoped. The next year, I went to the Mayball as the date of a very glamorous girl who had a triple-barreled surname, and I got given a wristband as I went in, dressed in my, you know, in the proper black tie and everything, and I got given a wristband, which meant that everything there at this entire event, the food, the gigs, the champagne, everything, was completely free. 
And so I'm walking around going, this is just the best. This is such a different experience from last year when I was washing up. And you walk around. Now imagine that while I'm wearing this wristband, someone comes up to me. The, the washing up guy from last year comes up and says, oh, Wilson, glad you came. Oh, yeah, the pile of dishes is over there. Well, how do I respond to that? I'd probably respond by saying something like, the grace of God upon my life is not dependent upon me on what I have to, or something like that. I'd probably say, I don't have to wash up for you. I don't have to work for you. I'm allowed to be here on the basis of this wristband and you don't get to tell me anything that I now have to do in order to deserve it because I'm with her and this proves it. This gives me access to all the benefits that I had to work for last time, and so I don't have to work for you anymore. And that's what happens when you get united with Christ, Paul says, through repentance and faith. We come to Christ, and we're able to walk up to our, our old masters who say, you have to keep all of this, and you, this, these things, here's a part of work for you to go and do. You say, no, I don't have to do that. I'm with him, and this wristband, faith in Christ, gives me access to all of these benefits. I don't have to work for you anymore. Because this, in, in, in a good way, entitles me to everything that comes with being with Christ. I don't have to wash up or get circumcised or keep the Jewish food laws to satisfy your standards. I'm in through faith in Christ. And that is such a radical message that Paul has to explain in some detail how he got it from God and not from people. He says, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Verse 11. I didn't receive it from any human, nor was I taught it. I got it through revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 12. He who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, verse 15. says, I got this from God, not from humans. Grace isn't the sort of thing that humans make up. People don't invent things like grace. What we like is requirements and demands on people. And we like to form little hierarchies and say, who's the most valuable at this end and the least valuable at that end? And we want an extra thing you have to do in order to get gold membership. That's how we tend to do things. Paul knows all about that. He used to do it himself. But the Christian gospel, Paul says, is not man's gospel. It's not the way we do it. It's God's gospel. It comes through revelation of Jesus Christ, and by God's grace, it creates a new individual justified by faith alone, embedded within a new community in which we are able to tear down all of the divisions of this world, and that sits inside a new world that God has come in Christ to liberate us from the old one and into a place where what counts is new creation. So what defines the people of God in this age is not food and festivals and foreskins, it's faith and family and friendship and fruit. It's the goodness of God, favour given to us and expressed in the Lord Jesus. And it's that, ultimately, friends, that will make us, as we pursue it together, undivided. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your extraordinary grace that all of us in different measure probably still struggle to believe at times. Lord, thank you that you have declared us free as a result of the work of Christ on our behalf and not as a result of our works, but we pray that we would be able to build a community here and even to see the reality of a world here in which the, stand, the ways in which we tend to do things come crumbling down and what counts is the new creation that is ours in Christ. Lord, make us undivided, we pray, and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.